the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform, challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Good morning, San Diego Saints. Uh, We are going to begin a new series uh, we just finished up um, a, the book called The Blueprint, um, whether the um, Bible plan, the kingdom plan of God is a circular, cyclical Jewish uh, model, or whether the design is a Greek linear model. And so we've completed that. Uh, if you want to hear that series, um, go to my website at www.simpletruthministries.net. And we will have all of those recordings there, or you can get them on the KPRZ uh, podcast site as well. So today, um, this morning, we're going to begin a new series, and it's called The Kingdom. And then the byline under that is From Creation to the Millennium. And that's uh, written by a colleague of mine, Don Enavolson. We partnered together to write uh, what we call the... uh, Kingdom Calling Field Manual. He was one of uh, four authors, and um, we wrote a small, to-the-point training manual for people who are uh, entering into the kingdom as to uh, what resources they have available to them, what's expected of them, what are their responsibilities, but what are their blessings as well. So I'm going to start out by reading the back portion of the cover of this book. And um, it kind of sets up the introduction. And it says, Jesus did not preach, quote, the gospel, close quote. Rather, he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. The difference is prodigious. Well, meaning very, very significant. Big difference. Down below that, it says this following paragraph. So begins this insightful and groundbreaking examination of the kingdom of God as to its meaning, its purpose, its history, and its future. Above all, the kingdom explores the role of human beings in God's plan for planet Earth. From the vice regency instituted at the very beginning at creation, through the destruction of the, of the fall that we see in Genesis 3, 
and finally to the appearance of Messiah Jesus and the ultimate redemption and restoration of the divine design of creation. So that's on the back cover. And on the intro, uh, I began to teach this series over at the Tree of Life Messianic Jewish Congregation, which is located in uh, El Cajon, um, the Grossmont Shopping Center. So if you want to join us over there, we're just getting started. We only did the first uh, uh, night of introduction. And um, we're going to have a series that's probably going to last at least, I, I would assume, seven to eight weeks. But I wanted to talk about the introduction, which is what we discussed last night at the, uh, at the Tree of Life. And um, I wanted to point out a couple of things, just starting here with the first paragraph. Don Ed of Olson says in his book, The Kingdom, the greatest compromise to the effectiveness of the gospel occurred when the words of the kingdom were taken out and the gospel of the kingdom became the gospel. So, in other words, the of the kingdom got removed. In fact, Jesus did not come to preach, quote, the gospel, close quote. Rather, he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. And as we said earlier, there's a huge difference between the two. And he goes on to say, from the first day of Jesus's public ministry, the kingdom was the central core of his message. It was a persistent, unwavering theme of all that Jesus said and all that Jesus did. And as Jesus described it, the kingdom was defined in relationship to the king and the king's dominion. Where God is king, his kingdom is also present. And that is where people embrace the redemptive work of Messiah, Jesus. They are set free to enter into life. And they are set free to enter into the order of the king and the kingdom that the king brings. Thus benefiting from all of the blessings of a kingdom lifestyle. And taking up the responsibilities of being what the scripture calls a royal priesthood. The gospel of the kingdom was a message of restoration to God's original plan for the world. I'm just going to take a little deviation here. God doesn't change, and he will complete what he started, what he began. And this whole gospel message, this is what we have taught, um, not only in my books, the blueprint of the gospel message being a cyclical, circular design. Um, I oftentimes explain it to people when they say, well, what's the Bible all about? And again, my ministry is called Simple Truth. And this show is called Simple Truth Moments. And I explain that the Bible, in its in pretty much its entirety, is a family reunion story. I think that takes people somewhat aback by saying the whole Bible. I, and I basically say, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to it. But 
there's also a simplicity to it when you step back and you see that in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we see the creation story, um, including what God did on the sixth day by creating man. And the fact that man is created on the sixth day is going to be significant because man really is the chief protagonist in how this whole um, story, the central character of the story, of course, apart from Father God himself, is the, the being who ends up actually <laughs> upending the kingdom and threatening its very existence by the time we hit Genesis chapter 3. And this central character is called man. And as uh, the introduction ends, it's uh, John Intervolson says, the story of the kingdom of God and the story of man cannot be separated. They are linked. So we in the first three chapters of Genesis can pretty much see that in Genesis chapter 1, it begins with, the creation of man, and why he was created. We're going to get into that uh, later on today because we're going to cover that first chapter in, in uh, the kingdom from creation to millennium of Don and of Olson. We're going to get into that. But before we do, I just want to give a little bit of an outline. In the second chapter of Genesis, we see man um, basically understanding his role his purpose. So Genesis 1 sets up the fact that we're supposed to have a relationship with our Father, and we are made in His image and His likeness. We have to stop and really contemplate that. What does that look like? What does that mean? I mean, God had created a lot of different entities and, and uh, items and things, animals, everything from fish to the birds to the things that crawl on the ground. I mean, the, the plant life, the, the, everything in the universe. And yet, we are supposed to be in the image and likeness of God. We're going to explore more, more of that. Uh, because that is really um, kind of mind-blowing and significant when you really want to focus in and target in on what God's purpose was for man within this entity called the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And so in chapter 2 of Genesis, we see uh, more details as to man's role. What is he supposed to do? What is expected of him? What are the blessings that he can take advantage of? Um, But what is the level of authority that Father God has handed over to man to basically run this entity called Earth? Phenomenal. I mean, God makes animals, again, just out of the dust, and he brings them over to Adam. And he asks Adam... Um, he doesn't tell him what to call things. He asks them, what does Adam want to call these new cre- uh, creatures that are being presented to him? And it was almost as if Adam wasn't working for God. He was working 
with God together. And of course, under the um, sovereignty of God, knowing that Adam (laughs) had a job to do, but God was saying, let's in many ways do it together, together. And then, of course, everything blows up in Genesis chapter 3, and unfortunately, we, we understand that there was a rebellion in heaven that we see in Isaiah 14, uh, where this rebellious angel basically decides to uh, decide that he has a throne, and he's going to raise that throne above that of God. And we see it again also in Ezekiel chapter 28. But the point is, is that that rebellion did not begin on earth. It began in the second heavens. And it began in the heavenly sphere. And the reason that's important is to point out that the problem as is identified in Genesis chapter 3 is not a human problem per se. It's a spiritual problem that began in the heavens. And so it was a spiritual problem that went from the heavens into the earth. The earth was perfect when you read Genesis chapter 1 and when you see Genesis chapter 2 and you read those and you're saying, this is perfection. Man has a relationship with God and he has all the blessings of the creation and God says, I trust you implicitly to run this place. And he gives him an almost uh, unparalleled amount of authority, virtually complete authority with very little limitations. And all of that is described in detail in the first two chapters. And then by Genesis chapter three, it all blows up. So we're going to study that as well. But the reason I was wanted to focus on uh, the spiritual world invading the perfect earth <laughs> up, to, up until Genesis 3 uh, is that we oftentimes focus on, gee, if we can just get to the heaven and if we can just go, you know, get out of here and right off earth and leave earth, escape earth and go to heaven, everything gets fixed. Well, um, transportation is not the solution to God's problem that he has on his hand. His problem that he has on his hand by Genesis chapter 3 is called spiritual rebellion that came down to earth and basically invaded the earth and took over. So we'll get into that later. I wanted to finish this introduction paragraph. So the gospel of the kingdom was a message of restoration to God's original plan for the world. So basically, if you want to say, well, what does that look like? It's a circle. It's a circle. You're coming back to something. God's original plan was perfect, and it was only um, interfered with and destroyed after there was a spiritual invasion that took place of the earth of fallen, rebellious angels. Okay? So, but the gospel of the kingdom is a message of restoration. In other words, you're going to restore something that you earlier had in order to restore something that assumes that you earlier were in possession of something and it was lost to you. So I'll read this again. The gospel of the kingdom was a message of restoration to God's original plan for the world. Being born again 
was never the goal of the kingdom. It was what the author says was the initiatory rite. In other words, it was the beginning ritual of how that journey of being a member of the kingdom of God was to begin. But it was the being born again is basically the beginning of the adventure. It's the start. It is not the goal. And unfortunately, under the influence of um, secular philosophical systems, and we talked about that in earlier weeks about the influence of Gnosticism and Greek thinking, Greek philosophy uh, coming down from Socrates and Aristotle and Plato, um, also the influence of pagan um, thinking, especially after the the diaspora in 70 AD when Titus um, destroyed the second temple and the Jewish uh, gospel message um, was dispersed all over the Western Greek world, which already had its philosophical systems in place, its pagan religious systems in place. And so under the influence of those secular and pagan philosophical and, and religious systems, the original church, Christian church, Christian Judeo-Christian church, because it was Judeo, it was um, obviously the first uh, believers in the, mes- in the message of Messiah Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah, uh, were Jews. And as we said earlier, the books of the Bible are 66 books, but my goodness, at least 39 of 40 authors. The Bible has 40 authors, at least 39 of them are all Jewish. Um, The church began to define the kingdoms in a different way, um, only emphasizing the initiatory right of being born again itself. Aspects of God's reign in the hearts and minds of mankind changed into a code of moral laws to be followed meticulously without a conscience reference to the king. So the, quote, gospel, close quote, became more important than the gospel of the kingdom. And it began to focus on the good news of forgiveness of sins and then entrance into heaven. And that was it. It lost the circular component of coming back to Father God through Jesus and by the Holy Spirit, as Ephesians 2.18 tells us. So the heavenly destination became the goal. And that's very Greek. That's very Western, because as we explained in earlier shows, the Greek thinking was all about reflecting Gnosticism in many ways, that anything earthly, anything material was evil, and only the good could be found in the spiritual. So the focus on the good news of the gospel became singularly focused to uh, forgiveness of sin and entrance into heaven. The heavenly destination actually became the goal over time. And so where the gospel of the kingdom sought restoration of God's original plan that we see in Genesis 1 and 2, of the earlier connection between, a symbiotic connection really, between heaven and earth, in order that the will and purpose of God might be accomplished on earth as it is in heaven, the so-called gospel without of the kingdom words after it became or a proclamation of escape 
an escape from the inherently flawed material world over to a spiritual paradise in another dimension. So in the transition, God's purpose to a large degree became lost. The gospel and the gospel of the kingdom worked at cross purposes. One message emphasized the escape. It was a message of the soon escaping church. But the other gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, was very different. That which John the Baptist preached, announcing the the soon coming Messiah, and then Jesus appearing on the scene after he waited his 30 years to be trained as a rabbi, and he is released to announce this gospel of the kingdom. This gospel of the kingdom had another focus other than escaping the earth and going to a heavenly location as the goal. It rather became a message of restoration of what Father God began, of what Father God created in Genesis 1 and 2, of what Father God started in Genesis 1 and 2. Relationship with God in Genesis chapter 1, made in his image and likeness, and chapter 2 of Genesis, the role of mankind in this newly newly created world to rule and reign, to rule and reign with God. We were to subdue the earth. We were to have dominion over the earth. We're going to explain that in much more detail. What does that look like? We were to be a steward of the earth, to take care of the earth. We were to work it and keep it, as Genesis 2 tells us what Adam was told. So to end up with the intro, it says, today, the kingdom languishes amongst the most misunderstood concepts in history, and it's become a little more than a synonym for heaven or the church at large. But in reality, however, the kingdom of God annotates the public ministry of Jesus by at least several millennia. It was at the heart of God's plan from the beginning of the world, and it runs through the core of history all the way to the millennium and beyond, way beyond. Indeed, the kingdom constitutes a comprehensive expression of the character of God and the essence of his nature made visible. The essence of his nature made visible. It's a portrayal of his nature. That, just as a little side note, that's uh, what Romans chapter 1 was all about, where Paul was saying, hey, um, when it comes to Judgment Day, for those who say, well, we didn't hear about this gospel, he's saying the evidence of this nature and character of God was all around you in the evidence of the creation. Look around. Look at the order that it brought. Look at look at how the the planets and the stars were aligned. Look at the cyclical uh, order of things, of organization, which brings blessing, which brings freedom. And so, we're going to study the central character in this story, apart from Father God Himself and Jesus as Messiah and His Holy Spirit. The most important character in this Bible story is how do we get this man who became detached 
separated from God by thinking that he needed to be God himself after he listened to some fallen angel suggestions, rebellious angel suggestions about the real motivation of what God wanted to do with man in the beginning of this creation story. So, on the other side of the break, we're going to talk about this first chapter, and uh, it's entitled Only Human. And um, we're going to ask the question of what's asked in when David wrote Psalms 8, verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? So we're going to define the kingdom. Um, we're going to also talk about man's special role, man's special purpose in that kingdom along Psalms chapter 8, verse 4 through 8. And we're going to talk about what it means to be in the image and the likeness of our Father Creator. Uh, we're going to also, we may get into also the purpose, if we get into chapter 2 on the other side, why was man created? And to look into the amount of authority mankind was given to basically rule and reign over the earth. And it's not just in the first two chapters of Genesis. We start to see it all through Paul's epistles and especially the book of Revelation. Look at chapter 5 in Revelation. You see that the original story of man's authority is going to end up being at the end of the last book of Scripture as well. It's a circle. We'll see you on the other side of the break. Welcome back. We are talking about this new book from Don Enavolson, The Kingdom, and the subtitle is From Creation to the Millennium. We've talked about the introduction of the book, and we are going to jump into chapter one. It's entitled Only Human, and uh, the author uh, starts off with pointing out David's question when he wrote Psalm 8. And he is asking, what is man that you are mindful of him? Um, God does care about man. He cares a lot about man. And in spite of all the weaknesses and faults uh, inherent in mankind, um, David's experience shows that God holds humanity in a high regard. Um. God has a highly elevated purpose in mind for man, though it is rarely understood. So we're going to talk about um, what is the purpose of mankind in this kingdom of God context. And so in order to do that, we need to define the word kingdom. So very simply, 
a kingdom is not so much a place. It can be a place, but oftentimes when we think of kingdom of God, we just think, oh, okay, that's a synonym for heaven. But that's because of Greek thinking that has come into the original Middle Eastern Jewish um, description in the Bible. And kingdom signifies the domain of the king. And it really is a jurisdictional sort of concept, which is um, a authority and power of the king. And it's describing the word, really, of government. So when you think about the message that John the Baptist was announcing, he was saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus teaches us only one prayer when he starts his uh, ministry, and he also starts to announce, repent for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, obviously, Jesus and John the Baptist were both here on earth when they were sharing that message, but they were using this term kingdom. And basically... If the kingdom means not just a location, but rather the domain or the jurisdiction of the king, we're talking about a form of government. If you think about Isaiah chapter 9, it talks about this soon coming Prince of Peace, this Messiah, and it says the government will be on his shoulder. And what we're really asking when you think about it, Jesus only taught us one prayer, When we say, thy kingdom come, Jesus is on earth when he teaches us that prayer. And we are also on earth. So we're looking up and we're saying, our Father, and we're asking that the Father send to us on earth his kingdom. And so now we're talking and thinking in a different way. We're thinking, well, wait a minute, if kingdom is only supposed to be a place and it's a synonym for heaven— What's this, um, the Lord's Prayer, or as the Catholics call it, the Our Father, this seems to have a different focus. This seems to have a focus that is looking, um, actually looking up to heaven to say, bring something down to earth where we are, because we need something desperately from as it is in heaven. And so it says, may your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. And then, of course, the next line describes what kingdom is and what it looks like. The next line in the Lord's Prayer says, your will be done. Well, the question would come up, where? We're asking the Father Per the instruction that Jesus taught us, this is how you pray. Father, send us your kingdom. And the reflection of that kingdom is his will. When we're saying this, your will be done. I don't think that's so much a petition as almost like a declaration. We're making a declaration to say we are a mess down here. We're full of confusion. We're full of chaos down here because of what happened in Genesis 3. 
And unfortunately, Adam and Eve handed their authority to rule and reign this earthly kingdom. They handed it over voluntarily to the enemy, the fallen angel, who through suggestions and character assassination of trying to insert um, doubt in the motivations of Father God in providing all that was given to them in Genesis 1 and 2. And somehow his motivations were to be suspect because he was holding out on them. And he didn't want them to uh, eat from this one tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And unfortunately, here we are. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, there's a restorative nature plan that God has to restore everything as it was in the beginning. And he has to, has to come up with a, with a plan to basically defeat the kingdom of this spiritual invasion of rebellion against God. And that is the core nature of the problem that we have down here on earth. Mankind is now in rebellion against God, and they have basically taken on the nature of the rebellion, which is a fallen fallen angel spiritual kingdom invading this human material earth. All right. So, kingdom defined. It is the domain of the king, and we're asking when we pray, bring your domain, bring your government, bring your kingdom down here, and it will be known and seen when your will, Father, is being done. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Listen to, the, to where? On earth as it is in heaven. So the kingdom in this context is a visible portrayal when we look at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, of God's creative nature. He's a God of creation. Amazing, amazing creation. I want to read a paragraph um, to you of describing basically what God made. And it's just, okay, let's see if I can find it real here. It is a journey on something that is so incredibly complex, yet it all seems to come and to work together. It all seems to come together, and and it's a combination of beauty. It's a combination of art. Let me read this to you. Uh, This is from chapter 2. I'm jumping here up a little bit ahead. But it all began in the beginning... God created, and listen to the characteristics, and it was good, and it was orderly. See, that's something that we don't have in society right now. Um, everything is becoming very evident in lawlessness, and there is no order in lawlessness. So God's kingdom was good, and it was orderly, and it was beautiful. It was a dynamic work of art, fashioned 
by the ultimate artist. It was an expression of his own character and his own perfection. It was a delightful wonderland filled with an endless complexity of shape and of color and of sound. It was infused with the very life of the artist himself. And since the artist was life itself, the great creation could never become stagnant or stilted, but it was rather constantly changing and growing into a ever-increasing array of intricate design that only God can bring. So God, as the ultimate artist, created, and it was good. And I'm going to add something that the actual words say in Genesis 1.31. It wasn't just good. It was very good. All right, that's important to remember because when we get into... um, other types of thinking of Gnosticism and Greek thinking, um, they basically, the um, Western Greek thinkers, linear thinkers, the Gnostics believe the opposite. They don't believe that the kingdom that I just read to you was inherently good. They say that anything in the material realm is evil. Hmm. It was according to the Greek philosophy and religion it's basically the they had a second string level of gods called the demurge and um, they believe that the demurge created earth and since the demurge uh, themselves were defective gods anything that they made was in turn defective and they believe that the demurge created the earth so that's why they came to the conclusion that earth rather than just the all the characteristics that i just read to you about What's reflected in Genesis 1 and 2, they believe that the earth was evil and that it needs to be abandoned, left, so that they can go to a higher place in the ethos to become perfected up there. But that's not how God saw earth after he created it. And so the kingdom, when we're trying to define it, was, is really an all-inclusive expression of God's character. What's his nature and what like? What's his character like? Well, you look around and you can certainly see one of the aspects of his character is that he brings order to chaos. Everything when you see order. Um, the cyclical parts of what we see around us, the migration of animals, it's all happening at an orderly pace. Um, the moon tides, the tidal changes. It's all done twice a day at an orderly pace. We have day and night. We have um, the seasons of the year all done at an orderly pace. There's something I want you to consider relationship-wise when we're talking about this kingdom and how it's based relationally. Um, I want you to draw three concentric circles on a piece of paper. And concentric is just a $25 word for meaning that one circle crosses over a little bit into the territory of the original circle. And do that three times. And I think a good definition of the kingdom 
is John 17, 21. It talks about the relationship of the Father and his children that were created in Genesis 1 and 2, and where it's going after Messiah Jesus comes to restore everything. And in John 17, 21, I think this summarizes the restoration of the kingdom in a relational context. It says it's all about the Father being in the Son, who are within the saints, or the children of God, and the saints who are in turn within them dwelling also within the Father and within the Son, reaching out to the world so that the world may know. This was Jesus' last prayer in John 17, right before he went to the cross. So that the world may know that the Father sent the Son. So taking it from the New King James, I'm going to read um, just contextually uh, John 17, 20 and 21. Jesus is praying in his last prayer to the Father before he dies. I do not pray for these alone. He's talking about his apostles there. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. The those there are the people of the nations. uh, The goyim, if you will. And so that he's talking about bringing Jew and Gentile together. And in verse 21, he says that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe you sent me. The request here, the petition here in Jesus' prayer is that relationally the kingdom of God can be the indwelling. It's not just Father dwelling with us. This is a a new level of intimacy that is beyond what we see in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Father God was with them. He walked in the cool of the day, as we can see in Genesis 2. Um, They talked together. Um, They They uh, communed together. They worked together on how to name the animals. Um, There was a special relationship there. But after Messiah Jesus comes, he's talking about an even deeper relationship where we're talking about indwelling, where the, and Jesus is describing this. He doesn't say that, Father, you are with me and I am with you. He didn't say that in John 17, 21. He says that I am in you. And Father, you are in me. And then he ratches it up about what's the role of man. And that we are in them. And they will be also one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. In other words, that Jesus was the image of the Father. He even said that to Philip um, in... in, um, I believe it was John 14. He says, uh, if you see me, Philip, you see the Father. So let's talk about this image and likeness. Man is very special in God's creation. Um, And that can be seen by who he put in charge over running the earth, over caretaking the earth, over nurturing the earth. Um, but also who has dominion authoritatively over the earth. So 
Man is very special and has a special place and a special role in God's creation. He has this unique purpose, unique in the sense that no other uh, creative creature has this unique purpose, which is ruling and reigning over the earth. So two pairs of terms are used to describe man's purpose on earth. And the first one is image and likeness. We are made in God's image, and we are made in uh, the, is the likeness of God. And that describes, if we are made in the image and likeness of God, that it describes the essence of the human being. Now, you've got to process that for a minute. If the essence of the human being is described as being in God's image and likeness, that is going to bring some huge responsibilities, some huge opportunities. And the next two words, or pair of words, that describe man's purpose are also found in Genesis 1, 26 through 31. And those other two words, other than image and likeness, the next two words are dominion and fruitfulness. So, when you start talking about man having dominion over the earth to subdue it, to rule it, it describes dominion, the mean, or both words actually, dominion and fruitfulness, describe the mechanism or the means through which God's image and likeness are going to be revealed to the world. I'll say that again. Dominion and fruitfulness are the mechanism or the means through which God's image and likeness are to be revealed. So God makes us, our essence is of the human being is in his image and possessing his likeness. And the mechanism that this image and likeness are to be shown to the rest of the of creation is through man having dominion and man being fruitful on and over the earth. And dominion and fruitfulness are not just the means or mechanisms, they're also the listen to this, the expected result that stems from being created in God's image and likeness. So in other words, if we're made in God's image, we're made in his likeness, the expected result of that is that man will exercise his authoritative dominion that has been delegated by God over to man, and it will be fruitful. So, the first chapter of this book describes that, let's talk about likeness first. Let's break this down step by step. Likeness reflects a vertical relationship between God and man. And this is how it operates. If we're going to take on the likeness of God, if God's going to give us his likeness, um, this is reflected when man worship worships God as his creator, as the sovereign. And when we worship God as our sovereign, as our creator, and we're worshiping him, we're adoring him, We're giving him uh, full credit. We're giving him all the praise and honor that he's entitled to. And we begin to have a life that just begins to reflect continual worship with your thought life, with your prayer life, with your investment of how you invest your time. What do you focus on? 
what do you think about? Um, we begin, as that worshiping um, takes place, we begin to take on God's character and his nature. And we become um, basically um, like him because he wants to pour his character into us. This is, this is really intimate stuff here. The other word, image, does not reflect so much a vertical relationship between man and God, but rather image reflects a horizontal relationship. So this is what, after we kick on God's um, likeness in our vertical relationship of prayer and worship, and we take on his character, we are now going to go to the next step, and we're supposed to take a step as we turn towards the world and in essence begin to be a reflection of something. Image reflects a horizontal relationship between man and the rest of humanity and the world where we become the visible image of God and his likeness to the world. So God downpours into us, infuses into us his likeness. And as we receive that, as we take it in, as we embrace it, as we appropriate it, make it our own, it ch- we can't be the same. It changes us from the inside out. But it's not supposed to stop there. It's not supposed to be just to us and for us. God says, now go reflect my image. And this is everything. When you think about when we look at the life and times of Jesus of Nazareth, of in, in, in the Jewish, he's called Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus, the Messiah. He had the likeness of the father, but he reflected the father's image when he turned towards the world, the, when the world saw Jesus, he, expla- he explained to the world, hey, you're looking not just as me, the son of God, you're looking at my father. You're looking at our father. So what's our job? Well, Jesus gave us authority All authority, he said, um, in heaven and earth belong to him. And so in Matthew 10, when he sends out the 12, and in Luke chapter 10, when he sends out the 70, he's sending them out to be the representers, if you will, the representatives where we represent God's likeness by imaging his likeness to the rest of the world. What did they do when they were sent out? Well, they did the things of the kingdom of heaven. They began to heal. They began to um, cast out demons. They began to uh, prophesy. They began to express God's likeness as a mirror, as a image reflection onto the onto the world. And we are to become. There's a word here that the author use, uses: image bearers of God's rulership his dominion over all of creation, including over all angels and all of mankind on earth. 
big roles, big shoes to fill. But you know what? We have all of the resources from the kingdom that God will supply. God bless you. We'll see you next week. Uh, Join us uh, for this continuing series that we're doing called The Kingdom from Creation to the Millennium. See you next week. God bless you. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal His Simple Truth Moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K-Praise. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.